Respond to the call for you are wanted. You are being called, of course, to a higher duty, to a higher responsibility. A beautiful song by Mamas Bongile Kumalo. Very politically heavy song, that is. Let's talk about politics then, because it is 2110. That's the time. Hashtag African narrative being a Tuesday. The deployment of the military in peacetime activities. And we're going to focus that particular discussion in Uganda, given everything that has happened before, during and after the elections that have since been declared by Uganda's Electoral Commission to have been won by long-term President Yoweri Museveni, who has now been re-elected for a seventh time or since 1986. If you were born in 1986... There's only been one president in your lifetime in Uganda. That person is Yoweri Museveni, who got a new mandate after supposedly or ostensibly winning a majority of 58.64% of the vote. Of course, Bobby Wine won 34.83 of the vote. Many questions surrounding that. And the question equally has to be in relation to how Africa conducts her elections and generally in relation to peacetime activities, the deployment of its military, how is the relationship between the executive, the military and related security forces and the population? Our guest this evening is Dr. Sylvie Namwasa, who's a postdoctoral researcher based in Copenhagen. She has a militarization background. So when we talk about all of these things, it is with some of her experience in that regard. She's a postdoctoral researcher under the Danida-funded project on militarization, sustainable growth, and peace in Uganda. Sylvie, good evening, ma'am. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening. Thank you for having me. It must be painful to watch what is going on in Uganda, both in the lead-up to the elections, during the election, and certainly the aftermath thereof. Yeah, we did have uh, quite a few um, fatalities in the run-up to the elections during the November riots. And, uh, of course, we had a media blackout during the the elections. So those were two very notable and unfortunate um, events, yes. Let's talk about the status in the general sense of how countries ought to deploy, or Uganda specifically, with reference to the laws that apply to Uganda and the laws that apply at an international level. I'm talking about international instruments, not least the African Charter specifically. What should we generally see happening with the deployment of military personnel in the streets of a community or of a country, ostensibly to guard over civilians? What are the inherent protocols that simply cannot be derogated from? Uh, So basically, uh, I will base on the Ugandan context. Um, Under the Ugandan constitution, the police has the fundamental duty to preserve law and order. Uh, But when it it, it feels that it will not be able to manage the... um, the situation, it can call upon the military to support it. And this is uh, mandated both under the Constitution and the Uganda People's Defense Forces Act. The problem with the Ugandan context is that there, there is clearly no legal framework 
that makes sure that this is the that this is the deployment is over is overseen in a manner that will ensure that the human rights standards are respected by the army when they're deployed to a peacetime context. Mm. Because clearly the, the, the use of force standards that the police um, applies in a peacetime context are not the same as what the military applies in a, war, in a wartime context. In a peacetime context, the police are supposed to first and foremost apply a human rights standard which respects the right to life. So meaning they should use minimal force as much as possible and lethal force as a last resort. When you deploy a military force to such a context with already uh, weak laws that are protecting the civilians in a wartime context and protecting in particular the right to life, then you're bringing in um, a, a new factor. You're bringing in a new factor, which is a standard of force that does not put the right to life at the forefront. Mm. Because in a combat zone, the military have um, the right to shoot to kill a lawful military target. And so if you bring them um, into a peacetime context without strict legal requirements for prior human rights training um, and a human rights framework and approach to use of force and also equipping them with the proper weapons that would ensure there is de-escalation and a graduated use of force then it's basically an open uh, check to, uh, for, for the security forces to use excessive force. And I think this is continues to play um, a major role in the scene of, of the qualities. I'm losing you, Sylvie. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I am losing you because your network just went a little pear-shaped for a slight moment there. We sort of cut off at the point at which you said in relation to the military and the standards that ought to be deployed, it does give free reign when they are there without that requisite sort of training that ought to almost be the precursor to their being to their being deployed in the first place. I'm going to return on that, but for those who have joined the conversation on the African narrative, our guest is Dr. Sylvie Namwasa, who's a postdoctoral researcher based at the University of Copenhagen. Of course, we're talking about Denmark. She's under the Danida-funded project on militarization, sustainable growth, focusing on peace in Uganda. She has penned an article as at January 10, earlier this month, the roots of pre-election carnage by Uganda security forces, and we are engaging on that. Sylvie, you are back, I understand. Thank you so much for indulging us. You were still speaking on the point of the free license then that the military has in the absence of the inherent protocols that ought to undergird their presence on the streets of Uganda. Yes. So, um, as, as I was um, trying to emphasize, the biggest problem Uganda has is that we have um, big and blatant loopholes in our law enforcement legal framework, which do not um, uh, curb the, the, the license to shoot when security forces are deployed. This is the major problem. Let's talk about the work of the police, who generally are there for law and order, know how to engage civilians. And I'm going to keep referring to the Uganda context because you gave me the sort of license in that you wanted to predicate the discussion around Uganda. The police in any society, are they to regulate the behavior, the general 
implementation of laws. I mean, they are called law enforcement for that reason. The maintenance of law and in the absence of that law being maintained, enforcing thereof, which is a completely different function as you have articulated beautifully in relation to the work of the military. Can we then talk about the inherent shortcomings in relation to policing in Uganda? Yes, indeed, we can. Um, so, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a problem of the legal framework, but also this problem um, has a long um, colonial legacy. Uh, because, the, uh, as, as you may or may not know, the history of colonialism was um, predicated largely on, uh, on, on brute force. And, uh, and, and indeed, the historical foundations of Uganda's police forces were actually military-oriented. Um, but all along since uh, colonialism, all the way through independence, we never had a fully, um, a full reform, re- reform process for the police forces. And so in as much as the, law rela- the laws remained a cake, already granting the police mm. uh, excessive powers to, to, to use force, even as they are um, enforcing the law, we also did not see a change in, 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 the, in the ideology of policing um, and the training, therefore, as well of policing and just basically generally in the capacity um, of, of the police to do their job in law enforcement, but also particularly to effectively control a riot without causing so much fatality. So already you find um, a, a, weakened, um, a weakened police um, institution and, and framework around the police, and then you add to that um, a dominating force, which is, which is the army. So then you find that all principles pertaining to policing and the peacetime context and that are supposed to apply to, to, to civilians then become obscured in favor of the more dominant force, which is experiencing, it's having um, more, more capacity because it's deploying um, regionally um, in, in combat zones and, and it has uh, more, more resources. So when you bring it into a law enforcement context, already in a weak, in a weak uh, policing framework, mm. then definitely the policing principles will be obscured in favor of the more combative uh, principles. Look, we keep mentioning Uganda, but I mean, it could, many, it could in many respects be applicable to a lot of African nations and a lot of nations around the world in relation to the shortcomings in some policing systems predicated on a past where then that was applicable and it was in fact sponsored by the government of the day. And I don't imagine, as it pertains to Uganda right now, it is not ultimately within the broader interest of and for the incumbent president, Yoweri Museveni, because ultimately he's a beneficiary of that, isn't he? Well, um, there have been, of course, research that has uh, made the, 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 this argument that, uh, of course, because of the history of the current, um, the current government that came to power through, um, through war, um, um, and with, with, the, with the same army that was uh, was maintained to death, and maintaining the clear um, clear leadership that was um, was uh, pertaining at the time that they won the war, um, then there is arguments and academic research that has um, has has um, made the case that then the political capital of the current regime um, is, is being held down by the army. And, 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 and that therefore it serves the, the regime's purpose to continue entrenching the military standards and military, um, military approaches to law enforcement in particular. Um, so, but, but, but 
I say all this to say that in any case, regardless of all of this, we do have um, a constitution, and we are part of the international community, and we are part of the of the African Union, and all of these institutions have put in place clear international guidelines on how force should be used. And as African countries or um, countries that have experienced um, uh, uh, colonial violence or post-colonial violence, we should be working towards in, um, implementing these principles. But we are liberated from the from the this uh, vicious cycle of, of militarism, of violence, uh, and of, of, of death every time there is a there is any political disagreement or any time citizens want to to, to express themselves. Um, so that remains the bottom line. The laws are there to guide us, and we should be working actively and proactively and uh, deliberately towards implementing those laws because ultimately they are already providing for us the proper standards. When you talk about the history and when you talk about the institutions that really are there to ensure what should be happening, you, you, you mentioned something which I hadn't referred to, but I have to refer to now because that history is important, particularly when you mention the names Milton Obote, Idi Amin, to the time where then Museveni himself took over. The uptake of power has been violent through military coups in Uganda for some 50 years going plus now given how Museveni himself took over power. The means that Bobby Wine has or would have typically do not accord and he doesn't posture himself or present himself as one who is prepared to take power by any means possible. So he's one who's trying to gravitate to the institutions through the constitution and the international instruments to which Uganda has itself ratified and signed because as you've confirmed, it is in the le- it is in the international community. How then is this migration going to happen given the fact that the incumbent is of a different school to what at least on the evidence of the election results, just shy of 40% of Ugandans are now supporting? Um, well, I think um, we really don't have any other choice um, as, as a continent that, seen, that has seen so much bloodshed. This is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. We have no other choice than to, um, than to embrace incremental change. And that incremental change within the, 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 the available legal framework and within the available institutions. Because if you look also at the, um, the election results, in as much as Bobby Wine um, did not win, but for, I think that for a first-time um, presidential candidate, he, he won by a fairly um, a significant margin compared to previous uh, presidential candidates even. But also more importantly is the parliamentary elections um, the, 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 the new breed of, 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 of young um, and, and energetic um, uh, members of parliament from his own party. Um, I think that um, for anybody who wants to work towards change, they should focus on these small but yet incremental and steady um, processes because then you can actually also focus on the quality mm. of, the, of, the, of, the, of the political landscape of the country and the quality of the change that you're going to, you're going to eventually achieve. Uh, so, so, um, so I think that the focus should be on these small changes and to see how to um, improve the capacity of these new players uh, to dialogue and, to, and to, 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 to lobby for what they stand for and to keep engaging the, the wider public slowly but surely. Because I don't think at this level we can afford to look at violence 
and, and to look at to warfare as, 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 a, as a way forward. Does time allow for this incremental change? You've got a growing youth population, not just in Uganda, but the continent all over. In fact, last week we had one of our guests who's based in Uganda saying that the typical Ugandan is a 17-year-old girl. That's somebody who essentially is two lifetimes in the presidency of Yoweri Museveni, given the fact that he took over in 1986. Does Africa... Does Uganda specifically have the luxury of time for incremental change when, first of all, the rest of the world is not waiting, and secondly, even the conditions on the ground do not accord that the incremental change be the option to be used as opposed to something drastic? And drastic or dramatic need not necessarily be irresponsible or equally violent. I think um, ultimately, first of all, um, it's not about the rest of the world. Um, it's about um, um, it's not about what the rest of the world is waiting for or doesn't have time to wait. Um, ultimately, it's about what Ugandans want and what they have been through um, in their history and what they would like to see for their country moving forward. Because um, if you if if we did um, take the other route we would actually find ourselves falling back so many uh, centuries or, or, or decades behind if we went the violent route. So, so so that is not an option. And we have to create the time. Um, and the way we create this time, um, even while we take this incremental uh, state, is through engaging, through dialogue and through engaging with these youth. Because if the youth are, 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 are made to understand what they stand to lose and what they stand to gain in working towards a particular goal um, and patiently, and in the process if they are given um, opportunities to working with other partners um, and through reorienting themselves even to look at their own environment and their own cultures to see how best they can make use of what they have make the best out of what they have, turn what they have into something. Meanwhile, these other incremental processes of political conscientization and, 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 and slow but sure change are taking place. That can be a workable solution for everyone. Otherwise, the, uh, the alternative is simply not ac- um, acceptable and not tenable, in my own opinion, because it would set us back so many decades behind. And I think Bobby Wine himself um, re- understands this. This is, I think, why he has chosen to engage, however um, um, fruitless it may seem, uh, to engage with the institutions that we already have in the country that mm. are not perfect, but they do they do work um, sometimes. So, um, so, so, so this is what I'm saying. It's not all roses, but but at the same time, we cannot just throw everything away. Um, we have to continue holding on to what we have and, and building towards something better. Let's and find. I think quite a number of Ugandans recognize this. Sure, no, I appreciate that. Let's talk about then, because we spoke about the police, the military itself. How do you then anticipate the reforms that are necessary for the purposes of a respectful and mutually beneficial for the purposes of the interests of the Ugandan people and the sovereign state that Uganda is? In building a relationship, one of trust between the military and the people, given the fact that we have seen the pre-election carnage by Ugandan security forces, the article to which you referred to on January 10, how can that now be used 
to create this beautiful future that you have spoken that you have spoken to largely in relation to all of these? Uh, first of all, I, I, I say that the biggest issue that is um, that that um, is key for this relationship to be uh, to be mended is accountability. The UPDF prides itself in holding its members accountable um, for for for, um, for for disorder, for misconduct, um, even in the original on regional missions. Um, so the same should apply. And indeed, um, after the the, the riot. The, the UPDF leadership went on record to reassure Ugandans that they were investigating their the officers who who used excessive force and that the punishment would be forthcoming. What we need to see is a follow-through on that, and this is where also civil society has a role to play, to continue following it up, civil society and media, so that um, there is uh, accountability being held um, on, all, on all sides. Um, so that is one. Then the, the, the next... Um, Approach would be would be um, through diplomacy, because Uganda has uh, quite a number, I believe, of of, of, of partners, global partners in uh, security um, sector is concerned. So these these two have a role to play, I believe, in in in, in um, diplomacy and um, putting forward suggestions for these reforms and how they could support in these reforms. Because they have to recognize, I think, as well, that they have a role to play um, in one way or another. Um, um, as regional players, um, for instance, in the war against terror, the equipment and the training and the resources that they're giving to the army. So they, they have, in a sense, a role to play in how this institution conducts itself um, domestically under uh, 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 human rights, international human rights standards. So they should partner. Um, in, um, through diplomacy and transparency with the government to push for these reforms and to see how to support. For instance, one of the main issues, one of the main reasons why um, the police uh, uses it, um, um, excessive force, it has been highlighted even by the president himself, is that they don't have protective gear. They don't have enough protective gear. So when they go out and uh, the citizens are picking up stones and hurling them, at the police, then the police feel compelled to then shoot. So what what then is the issue there? There is a missing gap there that, that can be filled. So why not give them more protective gear? Um, so if we, and then if it's a question of training, then why not give them more training? So capacity building is, is how those other players could um, could also come in. And of course, the civil society, the the the, the um, opinion leaders, especially the religious leaders also have a role to play because they came out strongly to condemn uh, the fatalities, the high fatalities that came up uh, after the riots. So, but they should then go deeper, in my view, and not wait for tragedy to befall the country and then come and make speeches. They should then engage with the partner, with the academia, with other NGOs, and see where the problem is. Then once they identify where the problem is, and part of the problem, I argue, is in the law, then they can be part of the team that engages with the government on legal reforms on these issues. So for me, I think if you combine all of these and uh, you bring on board all the relevant players in Uganda and you foster an environment of transparent and open engagement, it can be a slow, painful process, but I think it can, it can be something that can move the country forward as far as reforms are concerned and then sustain it as far as 
implementation of those reforms and respect for those reforms is concerned. Let's leave it there then. Thank you so much for your time. It is time to call this interview over because we have run out of time. But certainly the insights have been most refreshing. Dr. Sylvia Namwasa, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen based in Denmark. Ma'am, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 2034, folks, that's the show.